First on film and entertainment, I am joined by Gregory King and Peter Kraus. My name is Alex First, and Greg has just come back from a few days in Sydney. You do that each year, don't you, mate? I do, yeah. Um, this time I had a reason for going up there, um, not only the football, but to see some films at the Sydney Film Festival and to catch up with Tina Turner at a musical, which was fantastic. Ah, well, we will talk about that definitely during the course of the program. In turn, what well, Vivid was there as well while you were up there. I, that's something I really enjoy seeing. I haven't seen it. I think I saw, saw it once when I was up there at the right time. And I've got to say that I miss White Night in Melbourne. Did you ever participate, you know, one of the half million people or at least 250,000 that descended on the city? Because we, we don't have that. Instead, we've got the Rising Festival at the moment. I did um, the White Night once and I hated the crowds. <laughs> yeah, I... I must admit that I lost my wife and it's kind of a scary proposition because it was a human crush. Nevertheless, I would love to... I, I like things being lit up. I don't know what it is, but these days with drones and all sorts of other things, because I saw the finale on television, uh, the Sydney finale, I, I really like that. I I just think with all sorts... With AI and its development, with drones, with technology, it's going to catapult the artistic endeavour of human beings even further, as long as it's used for good, not bad, Greg. Fair enough. Are you going to keep droning on about this? I am. I am clapping on about it. Peter Krauss, you like dark places. I mean, are you are you into illuminated signage and illuminations generally or not? Uh, I'm not a great neon fan, but uh, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Maybe we should get you on a bike in, uh, in, in Lycra sort of illuminated lycra. Wouldn't that be an ugly? No, no, no. I Sorry, I, I misspoke then, Peter. I misspoke. The horror, the horror. <laughs> the horror, exactly. Now, stop bringing Jewish dance into this. Now, ah. thank you. Greg, uh, in terms of, uh, you mentioned Sydney Film Festival. What, uh, you went to opening night, did you? I saw the opening night film, yes. And just briefly, worthwhile or not, and what was it? Um, the new boys, the new um, film from Warwick Thornton. Uh, I, I don't think it's his best. Don't think it's his best film, but basically it's set during World War Two, where these um, kids are being looked after as some sort of religious nut, nunnery under the tutelage or care of Kate Blanchett, and then this wild Aboriginal boy is brought there, and sort of his story, how he fits in or doesn't with um, the other kids there, and that, and it brings in all sorts of religious themes. Things about indigenous issues and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, it's not, not his best film. Is it easily relatable or is it sort of more of an esoteric work? A bit more esoteric, especially the way it's shot, um, done in sort of um, warm brown issues, which match the best landscape. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, it got a good reception. Oh, yeah. Well, which I would have anticipated. Is The, the Sydney Festival is not as large in terms of numbers of films as the Melbourne, is it? Or I... you, it does have a lot of films there. It just doesn't go as long. Um, Melbourne's right. you know, for about 17 days. The Sydney one goes for about 10 days, um, plus a um, couple of days of um, repeat, or, or what they call encore screenings of films that prove to be popular. But it's more spread out than um, Melbourne too, whereas most of Melbourne's um, screenings take place mainly in the CBD. Yeah, all the way from to Leichhardt, Parramatta, Newtown, all those kind of things. Oh, that's good. That's great because, I mean, you don't have to sort of trudge into the city to, to see parts of the festival. I like that. Good idea. 
who wants to travel out to Leichhardt or Parramatta at night time coming home 11 o'clock at night? That's true, but are you saying that the films are only shown there? I mean, certainly... No, but, uh, there's a lot in the CBD as well. Um, no, no, but what I'm saying is that if you... if, if there's That's a... where I tended to stick my, my choices to, so I didn't have to travel far. No, no, but what I was asking is if you see a film that you like that happens to be in Leichhardt but you don't want to travel to Leichhardt, is it also in the city or is it... Yeah, there are multiple screenings of them. Yeah. Um, I was only up there for um, four days, so I crammed in three films over the four days. And a couple of other things as well. Mm -hmm. Fair and reasonable. Now, let's start with a film that is, well, I thought could have been better, but nevertheless, uh, I thought uh, I, I thought it was good. I still thought it was worthwhile. And I'm talking about One Fine Morning, which is 113 minutes. It's MA rated. It's, it's this slice of life piece. And it combines the sensitive touch of the writer-director, Mia Hansen Love, who was responsible for Bergman Island, with a leading actor, Leia Seydoux. I actually thought, she's such a fine actor. Love it. She plays Sandra Kinsler, who's a single mum whose husband died five years ago. And she's a translator. She and her family are dealing with the deteriorating health of her father. His name is George, played by Pascal Gregory. He is an esteemed professor of philosophy. Unfortunately, he has a neurodegenerative disease, which has greatly affected his hold on reality. He, he's all but lost his eyesight as well. He's no longer capable of looking after himself. So the family, including his ex-wife, Francois, played by Nicole Garcia, needs to find an appropriate facility to care for him. And and that's sort of heartbreaking. It really is in, in real life, uh, let alone on film. So he ends up being shuffled from one hospital to the next with Sandra being a frequent visitor. The rest of Sandra's life is centred around her eight-year-old daughter, Lynn, played by Camille Levin-Martins. And then she bumps into an old friend of her dead husband, who happens to be an expedition adventurer called Clement, played by Melville Poupard. Married with a son, the chemistry between Clement and Sandra is obvious. His marriage is on shaky ground. The inevitable happens, but navigating that inevitable is hardly without its issues. So mixing poignancy with pleasure, I, I actually think this does present the audience with a rich tableau. It, the script allows the actors to showcase their talents, which is the, the whole point of a, a good script, none more so than Leia Seydoux, who really brings a great sense of authenticity, I felt, to her portrayal. And it allows Sandra, finding Pascal, uh, in, in, in the context of what we're seeing allows Sandra to rediscover a part of her being that was really boxed away. And I thought that Sadu's playfulness is every bit as engaging as her more serious side, because we do see both sides of her character. And Papad presents his character's moral dilemma with, with assurance. In the clinches, quite literally, there's a smouldering intensity about the couple, which is good. I mean, we, we, that's what we want to see. Gregory excels as a man whose intellect has all but abandoned him, and I also appreciated the feisty characterization by Nicole Garcia as George's former wife, come activist, Francois. I thought she was really strong. And by the way, the film's title, One Fine Morning, is drawn from the professor's intended autobiography, which he never got to write. It deals with life's big issues with quite some maturity, and I found it a film of substance and quality that has emotional resonance. What about you, Peter? Did you, did you like One Fine Morning? 
I certainly did. Uh, Mia Hansen Love is uh, such a, an incredible filmmaker. Her films, as you mentioned, Bergman Island and Father of My Children and other films, uh, she explores in particular women's journey through difficult circumstances and trying to uh, reach some sort of uh, conclusion which is going to be beneficial for everyone concerned. And One Fine Morning is another great example. Leah Sadu is uh, such a, a good actress um, and uh, inhabits the role so well. In fact, there are times when you see her emotionally affected by what's happening with her father as well as the relationship that she can never properly have with uh, her lover who's married. So this is a really fine film, a great journey in many respects, subtle in, in some respects as well. And uh, another great example of French filmmaking that is uh, so prominent in terms of exploring, in particular, women's role in society. It's, it's certainly the sensibilities of French cinema are different, and that's something that I always look forward to because it's not the take that you would necessarily have from an English, an American, or an Australian film, for that matter, and Viva la Différence. So it, it's, uh, you know, no, no pun intended. I, I really enjoy French cinema because it explores themes in a different tone than we would get in uh, the the other Western nations I've already alluded to. What about you, Greg? Did you... I haven't seen this one yet. You haven't seen it yet. Okay, fair and reasonable. You can see obviously. Exactly. So, okay, Peter, the, your score out of 10 for one fine morning, MA rated 113 minutes. Oh, an excellent film, 8 out of 10. Well, I give it 7.5. Uh, I mean, I, I liked it. I, I, I really liked it, but I... I I didn't love it, but I really liked it. So that, that's what I would sort of say about One Fine Morning. Let's go from there to a, we go from uh, subtlety to non-subtlety, I, I would uh, suggest by talking about another superhero movie called The Flash. Now, this is a very long film, as seems to be the bent whenever you've got a superhero movie of late. We're 144 minutes here, so you know, shy on... Two, two and a quarter, two and a half hours. It's M-rated, and you you can't actually make a superhero movie without reference to the multiverse in this day and age, can you, Greg? Uh, the multiverse is is everywhere. It, well, especially in the Marvel films, they've been doing it for years now. Yeah, but but that's the thing that amazes me now that one's copying the other. Uh, I'm not sure who's copying whom, but we're talking about DC here. So DC's sort of uh, latched onto it, uh, and and I mean. Uh, is that a good thing? I mean, can't, can't we stick to one earthly plane? Can we not do that anymore? Do we, we have to go down? There is a piece of possibilities, though. Which I think this film has used quite well, clearly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Look, you've got the nerdish, insecure Barry Allen, played by Ezra Miller, works in criminal forensics, and he, he has, he's got a voracious hunger. Uh, whenever he can stuff his face, he stuffs, stuffs his face. That's to give him energy, right? So anyway, he's the pivotal figure. Barry Allen, and he is also the Flash. He's, he's a founding member of the Justice League, but he's forever down on himself. And even though he's rescued many people in distress, he regards himself as being treated badly, shabbily, uh, called upon only when his hero, Batman, is not available. And uh, just to give you some sort of context, the Flash gained his superpower, which was incredible speed, after being doused in chemicals following a lightning strike. So that's how he came to be the Flash. Barry Allen's upbringing has been shaped by a tragic event that saw his beloved mother, Nora, played by Maribel Verdu, stabbed to death. His father, 
Nora's husband, Henry, Ron Livingston, is incarcerated for that crime. Henry has always protested his innocence, and Barry, Barry Allen, believes him. The outcome of Henry's appeal is imminent, although his expectations of success are low. Then Barry, in the guise of the Flash, chances upon a way to rewrite history, to turn back the clock and ensure his mother never died. Although he is warned that going back in time, making over a single event, can upset the equilibrium of the universe, the Flash can't help himself. And it's there that he comes face to face with himself. Suddenly there's an older and a younger Flash, and the pair must learn to work together. But, as had been forecast, time travel can have devastating consequences. As a result of the older Flash's action, Earth is under extreme threat from dreaded supervillain General Zod, played by Michael Shannon. So, the Flashes, the two of them, are not alone in fighting the enemy. In their corner is Batman, played by Michael Keaton, and Supergirl, Sash Carley. With lots and lots of cameos, there's a great deal crammed into 144 minutes of intense action, and you've really got to concentrate to follow all the threads. The first Batman we meet is Ben Affleck, and Gal Gadot appears briefly as Wonder Woman. There's also a reverential nod, and I'm deliberately avoiding naming them, to superheroes past. So The Flash is the work of the writers Christina Hodson, who did Birds of Prey, and Joby Harold, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Direction is from Andy Machetti, who you'll remember met Runaway Success with It, the horror movie. Look, frankly, I appreciated Barry Allen's fraught backstory and his endeavour to bring back his mum more than the superheroes at war in this film. I, I thought that that was good. The goofy characterization by Ezra Miller, his awkwardness around virtually everybody, uh, is quite endearing. And I also like the arc given to both Affleck and Keaton as iterations of Batman. Affleck I, I first played the Cape Crusader in 2016, but with Keaton we have to go back to 1989. I love their nostalgic returns in The Flash. There are quite a few memorable scenes, especially early on among them, Affleck as Batman on a souped-up motorbike with more gadgets than James Bond in hot pursuit of a getaway car featuring gun-coat-toting thieves and contrast that with a flash running out of petrol as a building collapses and a baby shower beckons. That was one of the great and humorous moments in the movie. And I also dips my lead at the amusing reference to the Back to the Future films which appears as the plot unfolds. Now, Notwithstanding my basic enjoyment of the picture, I can't say I'm a massive fan of the ongoing trend uh, in in terms of superhero films, whether they, that be Marvel or DC. And I, I speak of introducing ever more characters into plot lines. I know the genie's well and truly out of the bottle, but I, for one, would like to see that reined in. I, I just it, It's just too much. Still, I, I thought for the most part, The Flash remains entertaining and engaging, if overextended, it did not need to run for two hours and 24 minutes. Gregory King, did it? Probably not, but more is better in the superhero universe there. I thought this was not, not quite flash, but it was entertaining enough there with a lot of humour in there. I thought as the younger, um, the teenage Barry, Barry character, Miller was channeling Keanu Reeves from his um, Bill and Ted days there. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought there was some, some of the special effects were really quite spe- spectacular and really good, but some also appeared rather dodgy. So uh, maybe they were running out of money by the end of the army <laughs> or something. And I thought Michael Shannon appeared bored with his role here as General Zod, just going through the motions there. But I like that some of the humour there, especially when um, Barry is trying to adjust to this new world he'd gone to when Eric Stoltz starred in Back to the Future, not Michael J. Fox, and Kevin Bacon was in um, Top Gun, not Tom Cruise in that. I thought that was playing playing around with some of the um, film history lore there. Um, I also like the clever cameos, um, many uncredited here, that pay homage to earlier versions of many of these superheroes that we've grown up with. And Michael Keaton is the older, oldest actor to play Batman on screen. Um, I thought he did a great job. Really? Yeah, I thought he brought some a sense of gravity to the performance, but also this sense of familiarity, because those who grew up watched with the um, Tim Burton two films there will remember him there. Um, but I, I look, it was a bit all over the shop at times there. Some great action sequences, lots of colour and movement there, and dealing with some big themes there like destiny, fate, family, and um, Barry Allen learns that no matter what you do, you can't change um, history. Mm, yeah, I mean, look, and... We've seen this theme before, but I thought it was really well played here that you, you, you change one thing, it changes everything, and you, you, you can't always get what you wish for, which is a reasonable theme. Peter, did, did you appreciate it or, or not? I mean, you're not really a superhero massive fan, are you? No, not so much. I must admit, I did find this film somewhat tiresome, um, especially as uh, Ezra Miller's Flash character and his alter ego, younger self, um, that uh, playing off each other became very tiresome indeed. I thought, this is just going on too far. Yes, there is some humour uh, in the film, and there is some clever CGI. I know that they filmed this over a number of years because it was affected by COVID, um, and uh, there were budget issues, and lots of uh, uh, filmmakers changed course uh, during the making of the film and so on. So it, it, it has its production issues. It was nice to see Jeremy Irons um, in the film. It was nice to see Tamura Morrison um, in the film as well. But throwing all these cameos and small roles and uh, and so on into the film makes it for a, a somewhat complex and repetitive mix um, for my liking. I mean, the whole Justice League uh, sort of aspect of it uh, is okay to some extent, but I just I just didn't feel any warmth or any any relationship at all with the characters or with with the situation um yes the cgi was uh, quite good and some of the cameos which we won't mention but are uh, amusing at times um were well worth seeing but i just felt that the whole thing dragged a little bit and it was just too repetitive for my liking so i'm not a huge fan of it mm. well again i mean i so did did you did you see merit in what they were trying to achieve by bringing back the past and combining it with the present? Because I, I, I did see merit in that, and Greek said the same thing. Yeah, look, to some extent, yes. But again, I've seen that in other films, uh, that idea of changing history, of bringing back the past. And I've seen it in, presented in a more compelling way than it was in The Flash, which be- became rather childish at times. I thought, this is getting really silly, and uh, I would have thought there are stronger themes that the film could have explored. Yeah, fair and reasonable. Okay, so let's go to the scores. Greg, why don't you start us off with The Flash, which uh, runs for two hours and 24 minutes. What are you going to give it out of 10? I'll give it three out of 
Um, six out of ten. I'm um, six to six and a half if pushed. Yeah, I might have given it more if it had been um shorter and cut some of the nonsense out. Yeah, well, that's that's yeah, which is what I started with. And well, okay, I, I thought you were going to give it a higher score given the the praise that you. Uh... I, like, I like Peter. I got a bit bored with it, and I found it a little bit repetitive. And at what end? Okay, and Peter. Look, it's okay uh, as a time filler, I suppose, for superhero fans, but uh, I could only give it five out of ten. Well, then I've got the high watermark here. I'm giving it seven and a half. I thought it was quite meritorious, notwithstanding that, like you, Greg, I I, I started to shuffle in my seat a little bit. Uh, but, you know, that, I think that's true of virtually every superhero movie that we're seeing of late. They they seem to definitely stretch it out beyond the two-hour mark, and... Uh, that that that's almost like a um they wear it as a badge of honor all right well you are on jr and by the way we want you to support the station 54 bucks gets you membership so just go to j-air.com.au and you can support us with your hard earned but just keep listening 24 7 we have got programming hopefully to stimulate engage and entertain you on 88 fm now i want to talk about another big film and I suppose it's interesting that we're coming up to school holidays here, and this to me is one that you can take your littlies to or your grandkids to. It's called Elemental. It's PG rated, and it runs for 109 minutes. And you've got to ask the question, what happens when water encounters fire? Well, you know, water usually douses fire if it's not too big. You know, if it's a bushfire, that you might need a lot of it over a lengthy period of time. But it's the question behind Pixar's latest animated adventure comedy. This glowing couple, Bernie, the voice of Ronnie Del Carmen, and Cinder, Chilla Omi, arrive in Element City and are duly processed. So imagine somebody coming to the United States in days gone by and, and you've got the Statue of Liberty, etc. You know, history of America. Anyway, circumstances have resulted in Bernie and Cinder. By the way, that that's not their... their of real names but their names uh they the the, uh, official can't understand what the names are so names them bernie and cinder and i mean i suppose that's true to life because often when um people in the past emigrated to uh, whichever country and their their names were not readily rolling off the tongue to an english-speaking audience they were given another name so i suppose there's some some truth in all of that but anyway, circumstances have resulted in Bernie and Cinder leaving behind their beloved home, which was known as Fireland. Element City, well, it's a place where each of the elements tend to mix with their own. So that, that avoids the fallout that fraternising with others can bring. So Bernie and Cinder, they take up residence in a dilapidated building before opening a good food establishment named The Fireplace. Soon enough, the happy couple welcomes a daughter known as Ember Lumen, voice of Leia Lewis. And in seemingly no time, she's introduced into the family business by her father, who hopes that before too long, she'll take over the business from him. There is a problem, though. While having a deep love of family, Ember, who is now in her 20s, is hot-headed, and she loses her call with difficult customers. That is a problem for her father who basically says, well, when you're ready, you will take over, but clearly you are not ready yet. And then one day, while left to look after the shop, Ember's temper triggers a flood. And swept into their premises is a city inspector, quite literally. 
This city inspector is a water element called Wade Ripple, played by, or the voiced by, Mamadou Athi, who issues the fireplace with a number of citations. And these may well see the place closed permanently, a situation that Ember cannot countenance. So in her endeavour to right the wrong, in inverted commas, Ember begins seeing more of Wade, Wade Ripple. And against her better judgment, a meaningful close relationship between the two does develop, although he does appear more eager than her. Mind you, when her father finds out, there will be hell to pay. More than that, the question must be asked, is the shop Ember's true calling? Now, I ask this question, why is it that animation like live action can cut to the quick and be so heartfelt and heart-wrenching? I was pondering that while I was watching Elemental unfold. And my simple answer, because the properties imbued in the rich tapestry of characters created by the master storytellers is just that. It's very, very rich. And in effect, cartoons become human. They laugh, they cry, they feel sad, they get angry. And so it is here in Elemental. And I, I freely acknowledge I actually shed a few happy tears while viewing this latest Pixar release. And I think that's a great thing. Dare I say there's more than a little fire in the hero. There's perseverance, there's patience, there's understanding in her bow. And while the pair are like chalk and cheese, the outcome is never in doubt. The film is about overcoming impediments. So it was written by John Hoberg, Kat Lickell and Brenda Hugh, who, along with the director Peter Son, were responsible for development of the story. Love the creativity involved in crafting characters that represent polar opposites, in this case fire and water, with clouds thrown in for good measure. And it begs for a kaleidoscope of colour, and it duly delivers big time. The picture is really glorious to look at. The animators have done a fabulous job bringing Elemental City to life. More than that, I thought the film has charm, it's got pizzazz, it's got spirit. Good one, as I mentioned at the outset, the parents to take their little ones too. It's called Elemental, it's PG-rated, runs for 109 minutes. Greg, what did you think of it? I haven't seen this one yet either, Alex. I had a problem when I came back from Sydney. I had a leak pipe in my um, apartment while I was away that's ruined the carpet. So I've been trying to get hold of um, plumbers and trying to dry up the carpet. So apart from work, I haven't had much time to do anything else. I can well understand. I'm sorry to hear that. In fact, you've basically played into the theme of this movie. Flood. Yes, you have. See, Inad- inadvertently, inadvertently, you, you've been flooded. Uh, yeah. In in terms of your flood of emotions, uh, Peter Krauss, what did you think? I uh, look. I was a bit disappointed by uh, Elemental. Really? I have to say, yes. I look. I like Pixar's films. I I remember all the way back to Inside Out, which mm-hmm. was such a clever and well written um, animation about uh, emotions and uh, behaviour and how to control that and so on. And I thought there was real quality in writing in that film. But I think now that uh, Disney is uh, part of the the Pixar universe, I have a feeling, and pardon the pun, that uh, Disney has watered down a little bit of the stories that uh, we're now seeing coming from Pixar. And Elemental is a good example of that. Um, The whole issue of fire and water and uh, how they are opposites and how they attract and so on, became somewhat repetitive for me. There's that repetition sort of aspect, a really? bit like the Flash. Mm. And I must admit, I, it 
for me, it was a little tiresome because I would have liked more of the story about the migration uh, aspect, about fitting into community, about other aspects of uh, uh, of land and water and and um, and so on, working together. It, I don't know. I, I found this a little bit too simplistic and a little bit too uh, repetitive. Look, the the CGI is very good in this film overall. The effects and, and so on look great. But I found the central uh, romantic relationship very tiresome and it just went on and on forever when in fact the film perhaps should have focused on other things as well. It was nice to hear the voice of Catherine O'Hara um, but um, I think overall, uh, and I know this film is preceded in cinemas by a short film about a man and his dog. That was fun. Uh, that was fun. Yes, yes, uh, the character from Up um, uh, and his dog. So anyway, uh, and, and I felt that was more interesting than the, uh, than the feature. So with Elemental, uh, I don't know, I, I just felt a little bit unhappy about the way the story developed or didn't develop and had its... Uh, obvious outcome i i like it i love the fact that they do those little shorts i mean they do it so well and i, I wish i like we used to see shorts when we saw movies of course i i don't think that's necessary to bring back but i i really like what disney does and it's not the first time that they've done it i i like the fact that they invest in those sorts of films i i'm I, i'd actually i would love to see a disney sort of cavalcade of shorts that's put together for audience involvement and participation because they're usually good aren't they when i mean they they don't choose just choose average uh sort of storylines and there's always a little bit of a quirky element to it there are in fact the writing for those short films is so much stronger and more interesting than sometimes some of the features but i think the reason for that is it's it's easier to write something that sustains you for a shorter space of time one of the problems that I often have with a film is they build it up and then they struggle to find an ending that I find suitable or adequate. And and I, I, I don't know whether you, you have similar problems, but I mean, that's pr probably one of the biggest challenges, whether you're reading a book or seeing a piece of art or whatever it might be, uh, getting an ending that satisfies an audience and fits in with the narrative structure can can make or break a movie, can it not, better? Look, it certainly can to some extent, and there's always audience expectations that you want to have a particular ending, a happy ending, or something else that ties things together. I, I just like Sades of Grey. I, I like to have uh, uh, perhaps aspects of a story that are a little bit more convoluted or a little bit more uh, difficult to manoeuvre so that uh, audiences have to think. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, one of my most, one of the best movies I've ever seen was On Sondee, which just... It had the element of surprise. Remember that? Yes, yes, the Dennis uh, Villeneuve film. Yeah, I mean, just I love that when you, you, that al almost your expectations are upturned, and I think, wow, you know, that's that's really something to behold. So that, that's that's kind of what I want in my movies, but that that's few and far between. I mean, you most of the time, as with a, a number of the movies we've spoken about today, you get what you expect, right? And a lot of people find that satisfying. Do you have a problem, Greg, when a movie leaves it up to us as an audience to make a decision about? Now, remember you saw... Oh, what affected it at times, like the ending of Inception, um, with the top spinning, and you just sort of 
you're left to your imagination. What's go, what what's going to happen when this top stops spinning? Um, but, but, but there was one you. But there was one that you and I disagreed with recently, where we went to the kino. Remember, uh, there was a you found the film quite slow. I'm just trying to remember what it was. It was uh, in a courtroom sitting. Saint Saint Hamur. Saint yeah, exactly. Now that had an ambiguous ending, and you, I don't think you particularly warmed to that, did you? No, I didn't like the film to start with, so you know that wasn't going to be effective. But if you enjoyed the film, or it's got all these possibilities. Um, yes, you, uh, uh, leaving you wonder what happened. Some books do that too. They come finish with a bit of an ending, ambiguous ending that you want leaves you up to work out what you think is going to happen next, and it depends on how you relate to the character and sometimes what you get at Taker and the film that it might um, you might go in a different direction. I'm just I'm curious, boys. We, I know one of our colleagues, Dave Griffiths, who we haven't heard from for a while because he's been involved in all sorts of other things. Hopefully, we get him back. But um, he has written scripts, etc., so he knows how challenging that is. Have any of you tackled writing, you know, like writing a longer piece of work? Obviously, what we do is we, we sort of write or broadcast about film and theatre and so on. But have you tried, Peter? Have you gone beyond that and, and written a script? No, I haven't. And and any interest in so doing, or you're, you're too engaged no. with what you do day to day? Absolutely too engaged with so much else. <laughs> but but I, th- I suppose you can admire the... I, I, I admire writers who can do that because it's a totally different form of writing to journalism. Totally different. Uh, you know, the creative process involved uh, and the yeah. time that it takes to write something as well. Um, high, 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 heightened and high admiration. What about you, Greg? I mean, you, you do a lot of reading. Could you ever write a book? I don't think so. I'm probably not disciplined enough to do that. Mm, fair enough. Well, look, that's a long time. Let, yeah, let's go to Elemental. Just before you move on, I was going to ask a question when we talked about the flash there. Uh, yes. We know Ezra Miller's sort of in all, all sorts of problems at the moment, but given that the flash is quite successful at the box office and everything, and there's likely to be um, sequels following the character, what are they likely to do? Are they going to recast the character or do they drop the um, flash from the Justice League roster? Well, perhaps you can, without, without going into fine detail, for those people who are not familiar with what's going on with Ezra, outline what's going on in a in a in a uh, respectful manner. He's got in, himself in all sorts of legal problems there. That, that's all. I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but he has been sort of charged with some quite serious matters there. Um, but yeah, it's just wondering what's going to happen given the fact that film companies are reluctant to um, yes deal with. Um, Actors, after they've sort of disgraced themselves, what's likely to happen with the Flash now? Well, like, it's probably just as easy to recast him. It's happened in the past, you know, with the Spider-Man and Batman franchises. So that might be the easiest call. Yeah, Peter, do you have a feel feel for what might happen in that regard? Uh, not particularly. Uh, I mean, Hollywood always finds it difficult to deal with uh, the, these uh, situations now, and. Uh, uh, look, who knows how that's going to play out. At, at this stage, there's been no verdict or judgment. Yeah. I, look, I mean, nobody's indispensable, dare I say, and, uh, you know, that, I, I suppose that's the answer. You you, you really you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, obviously, any cases will play out uh, in, in the right jurisdictions and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, in terms of um, there, there's still uh, Ezra... Miller will still be seen shortly, and we're going to see Dali Land. So that that hasn't come out in terms of uh, films that he's made. Um, 
but I can't see having a quick look that there's anything upcoming beyond the flash uh, in terms of his his uh, CV. So yep, it will play out. So let's go to Elemental and get get a score out of ten from you, Peter. For uh, that that I should re- repeat runs for well, it's it's PG rated, uh, and it run its running time is 109 minutes. Yeah, actually, it's not because uh, when I saw it, uh, the oh. 10 minute short uh, means that the uh, the feature um, Elemental run uh, ran for about 99 minutes. But anyway, oh, okay. well, it's interesting because I I always get mine from the motion picture, you know, the, the official body and it, it lifts the, the, as 109 minutes. So it, I did, it does. I did, so you're saying it's minus the short. Fair enough. Yes, yes. Anyway, look, it's not a bad film. It's just uh, too repetitive for my liking. It's too obvious a story. Six out of ten. And I'm giving it an eight. I, I thought it was terrific. I mean, again, it brought emotion into it and I like that. You didn't cry, obviously, Peter. Not at all. I had a I did, I did, and I thought that was nice. You know, if it if it can bring me to tears, then that's that's not a bad thing. Now, I wanted last night. I saw no, night before last. I went to see Identity at the State Theatre Art Centre. It's the latest work from the Australian Ballet. In fact, there's there's a ballet season, if you like, and this is the start of a ballet season here in in um, Melbourne for the uh, Australian Ballet. And we've, we've got a couple of other works that are, are uh, we're going to see. In fact, there's also going to be a Japanese ballet company that um, uh, is being promoted through the Australian Ballet. And it, it were two pieces that were both just under an hour. And it, uh, that's what identity is. Now, very, they're new. They're very different works. Each, as I say, uh, 50-something minutes. It, it um, In a nutshell, it's modern dance and then traditional ballet. So... There are elements of both I admired. I just felt there was a bit too much repetition in the first piece uh, while I've got enormous reverence for the second. Then let me deal with, with both. I'll, I'll deal with the second one first. second one's called Paragon, and it reintroduces the heavyweights of Australian ballet. And it's 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 interesting. It's got something in common with the, the movies that we've just spoken about in terms of bringing back the past. You've actually got quite a number of really fated ballet dancers who used to grace our stages, who've been brought back. Now, that's really gutsy, brought back on stage performing ballet when, you know, the, the uh, I mean, I, I don't even know what the ages are, but some of these people would be every bit of 60. Now, that's not old, but to take to the stage as a prima ballerina at age 60 is not something that you see every day. I thought it was absolutely fabulous. It's it's remarkable how dexterous they remain. Not all of them are 60, I might say. Um, and I'm not saying, as I say, I reiterate 60 is not an old age, but in terms of the expectation of ballet when you're seeing it in the best form, which is obviously at the pinnacle with, with the Australian ballet, that in itself is really challenging. So, I mean, it's um, it really did delight the audience. There's power, there's passion, there's emotional resonance. And it's the... It marks the Australian Ballet's 60th anniversary with a great deal of grace and style. And it's the work of the resident choreographer called Alice Topp and a composer called Christopher Gordon. So its Paragon celebrates the rich history of creativity inherent in the company over the decades. So and it, you've got youthful enthusiasm, so you've got the younger and, with, with, and lots of energy with the revered older guard as well. 
Eight vertical panels provide the backdrop upon which a series of evocative images are projected throughout the ballet. And the photographs are of the Australian ballet dancers in their prime and those behind the scenes stretching back in time. I thought the device worked beautifully. I mean, I couldn't get enough of the vignettes, which provide a really powerful backdrop to the glories of the dancers that we see on the stage. And the panels are frequently shifted to form new shapes and enable the, the performers to enter and exit. And the piece de resistance is the final act when the backdrop is reversed. So all of a sudden we see the back of these panels and they reveal what's called the bar, the long handrail, which I'm sure both of you can relate to uh, the, the, the ballet warm-up studio, you know, where where the, 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 you, you hold on and you've got to put your, your feet up to the bar, etc. And And the cast interacts casually against that and it is just magnificent. I, it's a stroke of genius. And that all but brought tears to my eyes as well. Bravo. I mean, bravo, really. I adored Paragon. Bravo for what they've done with it. And so that that's the, the second piece. And the first one, called The Hum. And it, it's it, even as you enter the State Theatre, which is just beautiful. If, if, Greg, have you ever witnessed the magnificent curtain, the, the red curtain with gold? embellishment and the uh the if you do you know what i'm talking about when you enter the state theater or have you never seen that uh not, no not, not you'd not. know like you'd know it instantly that that appears at the start of the second act and and i turned to my wife and said oh my golly that never loses its luster it is just something special anyway uh, that's not what you see when you first enter the theater here you've got this sort of white rock-like formation against a stark back back black background and it sh it's shape-shifting it's constantly uh, moving from smaller to larger and that's what what we see as we enter the, the state theater now that visual image metamorphosizes into a large global vortex uh, once the curtain goes up and it, it often has a tail so it gave me the appearance of a balloon of various hues and notably red and black why is that significant gregory thank you Mighty fighting Essendon football machine. I can bring football into any conversation, you know. Anyway, uh, various hues. Now, Orchestra Victoria intones this dramatic musical score with flourishes from Deborah Cheatham Fraylon AO to the work created by Daniel Riley. And he, Daniel Riley, is the artistic director of Australian Dance Theatre, and The Hum is a collaboration between Australian Dance Theatre and the Australian Ballet. Most noteworthy is the fluidity of motion inherent in this piece. So sometimes you've got a, a large number of dancers, other times you've got one or two dancers. That for, for all of the ability, though, I, I mean, this to me it's sort of about connection with the land, but I, I found it hard to pick up the threads of, of any narrative. I mean, it's, it's far more uh, ethereal in its qualities, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I can't really say the work spoke to me like the second one. I actually thought it struggled to sustain its running time. I say that because I, I didn't see enough variation to keep me absorbed. Half hour would have well and truly done me in this one. That It's not that it's bad. It's not. Don't get me wrong. But I just, the second one has such diversity to it. And the first one has doesn't have quite as much. Still, overall, the divergent pieces of theatricality and endeavor that are the hum and the Paragon showcase the breadth of the Australian ballet. That in it in and of itself all goes well for the next 60 years and beyond definitely worth seeing uh identity it's playing at state theater 
Arts Centre Melbourne until the 24th of June. It was greatly appreciated by the audience on opening night, which was Friday Friday evening. That is identity. I I want to talk on Jair about a, a couple of other things that, depending upon time, uh, that that I've seen during during the week. Now, one of those. How do you both feel about slapstick, absurdist comedy? Is it something that annoys you? I'm, I mean, you could go back to Mon- Monty Python. Are you Monty Python fans? Either of you, Greg? Uh, I like some of their stuff, yeah. I mean, do you, what about you, Peter? Absurdist comedy, does it do it for you or, or do you, you get challenged and it's not your bent? No, I like it. I mean, think of Jerry Lewis, think of What's Up, Doc. Uh, there's been uh, going back to bringing up baby, going back to the 30s. So, yeah, I like it. Okay. Well, what a breakout, beguiling, absurdist, slapstick comedy masterclass is at Malthouse Theatre. Deliberately pointed slight at male arrogance and entitlement. So you've got a pretentious interviewer played by Feedlam Cannon who conducts an at-first fawning interview with a heralded esoteric playwright and director played by Adrian Truscott. Their dress sense, uh, their wigged and mustachioed personas, at least one of them has a moustache, are as outlandish as the interplay between the pair. Now, Truscott has premiered a work that pits man against woman, and it's resulted in mayhem, with the sexes at loggerheads. Masterclass masterfully manipulates the traditional practice of interviewers and interviewees turning the age-old practice on its head. So you've got physical and you've got verbal humour colliding as the interviewee challenges the interviewer. Complete with music and dramatic sound effects, Truscott proceeds down the path of, quote, educating canon as to why white male artists are no longer needed. We've had enough of them, right? There's enough in, dare I say, the canon of what has been in existence since time immemorial. Now, while Cannon isn't sold, in time he comes to understand Truscott's perspective. Still, when push comes to shove, Cannon refuses to leave the stage. Now, this is a one-hour piece, and what happens is, if you can imagine this, you've got two people on stage with a couple of old armchairs, and you've got a like a coffee table, and little more, right? A few little accoutrements, but not much more. So the piece finishes and the pair are still on stage together, sitting opposite one another because Cannon refuses to leave the stage. And there's music playing, uh, which is, again, talk about talking about women and, uh, and men and so forth. So the music is most appropriate. And gradually the, the crew behind uh, at the Malthouse comes on to sort of um, clean the space and the pair remain on stage. And one by one, you've got the audience filing out of the theatre. And I was the, I deliberately stayed for 13 minutes. I was the very last guy to leave, and they were still there. I loved it. I thought it was just so clever. And it, I mean, much of it's it's really heady, hilarious, heartwarming stuff. Masterclass. It's a it's parody of the highest order, which pricks privilege and power. Much of the interaction between the protagonists leaves the audience in stitches, and in real life. Truscott is a choreographer, a, a dancer, a circus acrobat, a writer, a storyteller, and a comedian. And she's been creating gender straddling work in New York City and abroad for more than 20 years. And this show has been put together by Truscott and 
by a Dublin-based, internationally renowned theatre company called Broken Talkers. And its co-artistic directors are Fiedlam Cannon, who we see on stage, and Gary Keegan. And while this pair defy categorisation with their work, it's unashamedly ambitious and fearless. And that's evident in spades in this deliciously provocative piece called Masterclass. Now, unfortunately, it was only on for three days. It it finished yesterday. Uh, it was part of Rising, and if you and Rising itself uh, basically finishes today, um, or was it finishing today or, or yesterday? Anyway, it, it Rising. Th- there's there's been some talk has Rising because it was a combination of of two festivals of the past, including White Night. Whether Rising is hitting the mark. I I still miss White Night. I even though I did, as I said, lose my wife one year when I attended. I liked the fact that the city was open from sort of dusk to dawn, and and I still think that's that was a masterstroke. Now you've got elements of of uh, that White Night in the regional areas, but we no longer have it in Melbourne. I'd like to bring it back. Uh, I I still find that I'm missing it, and I found it was it, it gave the city a bit of a lifeblood. The challenge that uh, Greg you mentioned is the challenge that they face. Not having too many people, but you could have a you could have a serious incident, right? Where where people are, are basically uh, well, they're, they're smothered uh, if people fall in in amongst too many other people. So I gather that that's sort of one of the issues that they have. But nevertheless, as an event, as a cultural festival and a spectacle, I thought that uh, White Night was something special. I I applaud the. The Masters of Rising, I think they did a really, really good job. I saw quite a few pieces of work uh, over the 10 days or so. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I still think there's room for more. And often the festivals that you have in the smaller states, uh, to, you know, Adelaide Festival, etc., uh, you know, that, that's applauded because I suppose they don't have as much going on as Melbourne does. Melbourne's theatre scene is incredibly thriving. I put together a list of things that, I do every week, and you boys know that. And it's almost like at the moment, it's virtually four or five to one in terms of theatrical uh, entertainment compared to movies. I'm not sure why that is, but I've never seen that sort of mix that we are seeing today. Anyway, I also went to see uh, Robin Archer. Now, have you either either of you seen Robin Archer live? She she's quite something. She's to me, she's. One of our one of our finest treasures, a national treasure. Greg, have you seen Robin Archer in the past? Okay. Well, th- she puts together a highly entertaining show called An Australian Songbook, uh, and it could be the soundtrack of the glorious Robin Archer's life. She's accompanied by a highly talented three-piece band who also provide backing vocals, and they bring us largely a collection of little-known songs and a few poems. So there are a few tunes that Robin Archer wrote and others that chart the path of Australia's heritage. And she's got a really warm and engaging tone, crystal clear enunciation. She pays homage to Indigenous Australians and to immigrants. Her mother clearly has a special place in her heart and uh, really with her love of the land. And there's a bracket on parodies and blowhards, including politicians, which goes down a treat. Robin Archer ends this show with a lengthy doth to many of Australia's place names that goes on for probably, I don't know, the best part of 10 minutes. It's just amazing how she changes tempo. So there's ballads, there's lullabies, there's laments, there's love songs, there's yodeling, there's up-tempo numbers. 
the range of this woman is magnificent. She and Cameron Goodall on guitars and banjo, George Petromlis on the accordion, and Ennio Pozzobon on keyboard harmonize wonderfully. So you've got Bon Scott, you've got Kate Miller-Heidke, you've got First Nations songwriters. An Australian songbook is a rich and textured offering. Archer and her cohort clearly have heaps of fun doing what they do. The chemistry between them is palpable. So Archer straddles time and place, moves from the 19th century, songs from there to the here and now. So from deeply reverential to poking the bear, her at times salty mouth endears her to an appreciative crowd. She she really does provide background and context where like these songs came from, how they came to be. I thought that really was excellent. It's really a narrative concert uh, with a primary focus on the music. So artist that she is, provocateur in full flight, Archer is truly a thing of beauty. I really greatly applaud her endeavours. This was commissioned by Queensland Theatre. I think it's played in Sydney as well. Robert Archer, an Australian songbook, also was part of the Rising Festival that we have showcased over the past 10 or 14 days. I, I, um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it again next year. Uh, there, I, I don't know, Greg, you probably would have missed Euphoria, which was a, a piece of film that was at the Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, that 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 was also part of Rising, uh, and I know it was quite controversial because it was sort of against um, materialism, and yet it was a rich showcase where they spent a lot of money uh, getting getting the uh, visuals right. So I, I know there's been a bit of controversy surrounding it, but I found it I found it stimulating. Some pieces of it were were more stimulating than others. That was Euphoria, which is also part of Rising. That's it, boys. We are done. We are going to do it all again very soon. This is first on film and entertainment. Thanks, Peter Krauss. Thank you, Greg King. We'll catch you all again next time.